Hi there, ladies and gents. It's uh, Dan from Adventure More UK. Welcome to another episode of my new podcast. Uh, today's special guest is a former British Army paratrooper, a author, and a man who's been walking around the world for over 22 years. The man is Mr. Carl Bushby. How's it going, my friend? Good. No, not too bad, considering where we are right now. Uh, good afternoon to you. In fact, it's good evening to you, right? Yeah, now. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of going on towards the evening. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I said, it's uh, honestly, I've been wanting to chat to you for a long time. It's, it's been something I've obviously we've been we've been sort of friends on Facebook for a, quite a while, actually, believe it or not. Uh, but it's some, I've been following your journey, obviously, for a long time. Uh, and obviously, like, as I mentioned, being, you know, ex-military myself, I just feel like it's something that I've noticed. There's a lot of people who do your type of, not obviously not what you do, because what you do, will, as we'll talk about, is quite a very extreme version. But there's a lot of people who do sort of ex-military ex people who do a lot of adventure type stuff. You know, you've got your people like your Bear Grylls, Man, uh, Leveson Wood, uh, Ed Stafford, them kind of people. They all do the extreme sort of adventure type uh, expeditions and stuff. Right. Um, but for you, what I want to talk about first, I know obviously we, you've been doing this expedition for the last 22 plus years. Now, first thing I want to talk about is from when you were a child. Because I, I know, unfortunately, you grew up on the wrong side of the Pennines in Yorkshire, me being a Lancashire lad, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so you, was it, you grew up and brought up in Hull, is that right? Yes, yes. So what was it like back then growing up in, in Yorkshire? Uh, you know, I, I, I can't complain. I had a, a decent upbringing. There was no real dramas. Um, I come from, well, my mother and father split when I was uh, 11 or 12 or something along those lines. But my father had a heavy influence on me. Come from a, a military family. Um, so father, grandfather, great grandfather, brothers. So um, ultimately, that's you know the direction I went in. Uh, yeah. Didn't have a great time at school. It was a dyslexia kind of before okay. dyslexia was something anybody really took seriously. So that heavily interfered with life. Other than that, I mean, my childhood was great. Not a problem. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so. When you, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, you, you went and joined the military, went and joined the parachute regiment. Was that something you always wanted to do? Or was there other, other sort of different regiments or different battalions, corps, whatever, that you wanted to join? No, there's, um, I was, it was almost destined in a kind of weird, creepy way. Um, I think when me and my brother were born, father proclaimed uh, very um, prophesially that, um, one of us will be a guardsman and one of us will be a paratrooper. Guardsman okay. being the family tradition. And at the time my father was, was in, um, was airborne, um, going, moving on to the special forces scene. Um, and there's even, there's even a photograph of me as a, like a, I don't know, I must've been like two in, in a, an airborne, um, army outfit with yeah. a Pegasus on my shoulder and, corporal yeah, stripes yeah. and all this kind of thing <laughs> yeah. so it was kind of ordained from a very early stage and i just i just accepted it it wasn't anything i ever questioned okay and it wasn't like it was forced upon us we just grew up going in that direction 
uh, in a very natural, smooth transition from yeah. school. Uh, you know, I left school at 15 with nothing really. Um, straight into junior power at 16. Yeah. So, yeah, because you, you would have joined, I, obviously, my time in the military would have been a lot different than your time. In the military. I joined in the early 2000s. Uh, and obviously you you joined up during the times yeah. of things like uh things like northern ireland and you know when the heat heat of northern ireland yeah. um obviously i joined up in the times of iraq and afghanistan now i can imagine yeah, you got, two different you got the things worst deal. well some people yeah. would say yeah, different, I, but... I i don't know i mean i grew up in a time where one of the biggest problems the parachute regiment was having was we were becoming stagnant there was nothing mm. for us to do um, yeah. And I remember having a conversation with a CEO at one point in the car about one of his biggest challenges in life was trying to stop the guys from the regiment from getting in trouble or from the fact that the regiment was become, or the, certainly the third battalion was becoming combat inefficient because of there were so many people just leaving in droves at that time because there was just we were living in a too peaceful world, <laughs> believe it or yeah. not, there was yeah. nothing going on. Over Northern Ireland, which wasn't what paratroopers want to do. It was just you know, rotating in and out of there on stag every day and working as policemen. It wasn't really our scene. So it was kind of difficult to keep the boy, boys from getting in trouble, becoming bored and frustrated. That seemed to be the biggest problem we were having at the time. Um, all that changed not long after I left. Yeah, yeah. So did you, did you leave before the Falklands or after? Or did you? Well, Falklands was 82. Um, I was still yep. at school then. Um, right, okay. So I left in 98. Uh, the beginning okay. of 98. So, like, yeah, pre-9-11. Pre you know, post-9-11 right. was a completely different world. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so, obviously, you say you left in 98. Um, how, obviously, it, in 98 is the time in which you took part, well, started this amazing expedition that you're doing now um and for most people to compute that in their heads is obviously something that's you know amazing just mind-blowing like who would you know people go walking for you know 12 12 hours 15 hours as, as a you know they think that's a long walk you, you've been walking for the last 22 and a bit years that's that's something that's just you know i've got you know young friends who are, who are not even born when you started walking um and i feel like yeah. that's something you know that's the that's the majority of the you know i wouldn't want to talk about because obviously you're doing something that you're hoping to to do that is never been done on this earth like no human on this planet has ever done which is to do the longest ever unbroken walk throughout the world um now you started off. Was it was it the goal was to do? Was it around or above sort of thirty six thousand miles? I mean, the real original goal is pretty simple, really. It was to forge the longest unbroken continuous footpath. So the the idea ended up taking me out to the southern tip of South America, basically as far away from the UK as you could get on this little green yeah. planet. Sorry, blue planet. Um, yeah. And that, and then it was to get home without using any form of transport. So that was, you know, where the the idea came from. And it, that 
one day, you know, arose as a question, and then I, I looked at it and thought about it, and you know, it turned out, well, theoretically, yeah, you can. Uh, and that's where the whole thing started. Um, and we just took it from there and grew this plan. And the way it really happened was, I mean, I, I, I was in the regiment at the time, and my mind was starting to wonder, and I was looking at world maps and thinking of, other challenges, and I started looking at various continents, uh, routes across continents, and it wasn't anything significant, you know, five years here, six years there, max. Um, you know, if you're going to do the Americas or across Asia and Europe or something along those lines. So I was musing with this, and I was having conversations with my father about it. And then one day, um, it was a, on, my, on a birthday, father sent me a birthday card, and he'd written a note on the inside of that birthday card. And it was a conversation about a couple of guys in 2-2 that he'd been talking to who had talked about yeah. the possibility of walking from London to New York over something called the Bering Land Bridge. Um, and yeah. I hadn't paid any attention or wasn't really tuned into this Bering Land Bridge thing. Um, and when I realized they were talking about the, the Bering Strait, which hasn't been a land bridge for the last 25 to 20,000 years, but theoretically people were still thinking about doing that. Then I, I, I took that into the plan and I, you know, I, I looked at the line from the UK out across Asia up to the Bering Strait, over the Bering Strait, and now we're into the Americas. I, I couldn't understand why anybody would want to just stop down in New York. Why not take it all the way down to the bottom? And when I drew that on a, on a world map that was on the wall at the time in the office, it was just instantaneous. Like, that's the, the hairs on the back of your neck standing up and you're like, well, shit, that's it. That's what we've been looking for. Um, suddenly, the math changed dramatically and you were looking at, at a minimum of 12 years. It was obviously going to be more than that because there was big question marks like the Bering Strait, um, which at the time had never been done. Um, so yeah, I mean, everything shifted at that point. Uh, and once I, I, I saw that and, and realized that, wait a minute, this could be done and I think I can do it. And then there was, there was no going back from that point on. Um, so my focus started shifting and, you know, I was, I was, I was done, I was doing my 12 years in the regiment, was almost up 12 years in the army. Um, so I, I just ran with it. And the more people told me that, you know, there's no fucking way you can do it, then the more determined you get. You don't, you don't tell a young paratrooper you can't do something. That's stupid. Yeah. Of course he's going to go and do it then. So, you know, I, I remember some pretty tense conversations in the cookhouse. I remember the guys giving me some real shit. And I just remember yeah, becoming yeah. way more determined after each one of those conversations happened. Um, so it's almost like a bad bet in a bar kind of scenario. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. With, with consequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you, you, you went out, obviously, it, uh, I think initially, you, was it you expected to be back by 2012? Was that, was that, am I right in saying? Well, the 12 year thing, we did the math. I mean, the math will tell you you can do it in like four or five years or something like that, which is bullshit, obviously. Then you mm. add huge portions of reality to the mathematics, to the equations. And that stretches you out to six years to, for the Americas, uh, you know, from the southern tip of South America all the way up to, let's say, you know, 
north coast of the US, Alaska or whatever. Um, if you switch that on its side, that's basically the same size of Asia and Europe combined. So six and six gives you 12. It, but to get between the two of them, we had no idea how that was going to play out. So yeah. we knew it was going to be 12 years plus, but 12 years was the best case at that point. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, um, at the moment, you're obviously having, same as all of us, having problems with you know, COVID and stuff like that. Um, uh, I've had a lot of problems along the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, just going back to when you went across the Bering Straits, like obviously for people who don't know what that is, like it's in basic terms, what, what, how would you describe that to people who don't know? Freaking hellhole, more than anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a rough place. It's, um, basically what you have is a 57-mile gap as the crow flies it's between um, what's this, the Seward Peninsula in Alaska and the Dejnev Peninsula in um, Siberia. So it's where they almost touch. And you've got this stretch of water in between the two little islands, the Diomede Islands. You've got little Diomede, and then you've got the data line running right between them, and then you've got the big Diomede. And basically the data line is, is, is US, Russia. So not many people okay. are even aware that Russia and America have a border, and that mm. defines that border. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty tense part of the world, still is. Um, and it's, it's uh, basically during the winter, the ice will accrue south from the north, and it won't completely, um, you know, you won't, you won't freeze the ice that far south. But what you get is a lot of ice packs. So because you have two big oceans, the Arctic Ocean and the Bering Sea below, this narrow gap becomes a choke point or pressure point between these two oceans. So that there's a strong currents. Everything's always moving. It doesn't freeze over. Um, and it's one of the windiest places in the world. And that plays into the dynamics of how those currents and the ice move and everything. So it's just a really gnarly place. Uh, temperatures that, you know, obviously can get down to minus 40 or whatever at times. And it's at its coldest ever. Um, yeah, but it's yeah. always warmer than the continental interiors. So it's never that cold out there on the oceans. But um, yeah. it's because it's, it's such a narrow gap, it's always been a real temptation for people to try and cross it. And there's been a, there was a lot of attempts and a lot of people failed. Uh, until about, I think it was just after I probably set off from the UK, uh, there was a, a Russian um, famous adventurer, polar adventurer called Dmitry Shparo. Dmitry Shparo and his sons had tried the Bering Straits uh, a couple of times and they'd failed and it'd been very hard for them. And, you know, they'd suffered exposure and hypothermia and it even had a, a bear attack, a polar bear attack their tent one night and had to fight that off with a gun and all this kind of stuff. But on their fourth attempt, they made it. And so they were the first to cross the Bering Straits. Um, so the first you know, expedition in modern times that was recorded crossing the Bering Straits. So yeah. they'd made it from the Russian side, but no one was making it from the US. Even the, um, the year before us, there was a, a prominent team, a Danish adventurer called Dixie Dancer and his friend Tony Ankles, which is a, a mountaineer, done Everest and this kind of stuff. They were well sponsored, well backed, and they and, and Dixie had done the North Pole and South Pole, so they, were, they had a lot of experience. Uh, and they tried mm. to make it from the US side, 
Um, yeah. And they were on the ice for like eight days. They got dragged south um, and then eventually ended up getting rescued, picked up, and they couldn't make any progress west to Russia at all. Uh, okay. So from, from my perspective, from our perspective, me and my, a guy that I, I teamed up with to do this, called Dimitri Kiefer, a uh, French-American guy, adventure racer, things were looking pretty bleak. Everyone, every expert we spoke to said, no, you're not going to make it. Bigger and better guys than you have tried. Um, you guys just rock up here, not knowing what you're doing, and somehow seem to think you're going to cross the Bering Straits. People do it all the time, and it doesn't work out. So it was, um, yeah, I, being, on the, uh, being on the Alaskan side of the Bering Straits was formidable. It was pretty scary. And it looked like a yeah, huge yeah. problem. I, I expected yeah. to be bouncing off the Bering Strait a number of times. I thought this was going to be a learning process, whereby we would hit this thing like a brick wall, bounce off, lick our wounds, take what we've learned into consideration, replan, give it another go. Um, yeah, yeah. We got lucky. And so, yeah, yeah. So when obviously when you got across the Bering Straits, obviously you, that's when. Things went a bit south, didn't they? Uh, obviously, you, you, you came into contact with a lot of problems. Um, and that's that's something that I've read about. Is is it you got you got uh, you got arrested on an, an entry into Russia? Is that is that correct? Yeah, it would technically wasn't arrest. We were detained. Okay. okay. Um, there were. Um, yeah, there, there were there were a number of factors involved in this, and one of them was. We needed two things to enter Russia. We need a visa, obviously. Mm. And to be in that part of Russia, because of its proximity to the evil empire, you need special permission in the form of something that they refer to as a propusk. But at the time that we were on the coast of Alaska, um, preparing the crossing, we, we didn't have a lot of time. Plus, there's a, a window of opportunity within spring where conditions are at their best. This little golden window um, in spring where the, the, you have the maximum amount of light. Um, the ice is at its max, maximum extent before it starts receding and the weather conditions are at their best. So you've got this, this about a month long window, which is, is your best chance of doing this. The, our winter had been one of the best, one of the coldest winters in 40 years, which means we had the best ice condition we were probably going to have. So we really had to run with it as fast as we could and make this happen. If we were ever going to stand the chance, this was going to be the best opportunity. So there was this kind of time pressure on us. And then there was the visa and the propus. Now the propus, we couldn't get any information for. It was pretty mysterious. There's nothing on the government websites on the other side of the Bering Strait. So we were rushing around trying to figure out what that meant, how to do that. At the same time, we had been to a travel, a special Russian travel agency in Seattle, Washington. And we had gone personally, went down there, both me and Dimitri. We sat down, we spoke to these guys, and we gave them the Bering Strait plan and said, you know, we need Russian visas. And they looked at it. And we probably left that office and those guys must have thought, well, those idiots obviously aren't going to cross the Bering Strait. 
So what they did is they basically invented their own entry into Russia, a conventional entry. So they told the Russians that we were going to fly into, I don't know, Vladivostok or something, so that the Russians would just give them the visas. They would give us our passports back, um, but didn't tell us that they had changed the plan. So we um, thought that the Russians had seen the Bering Strait plan, give it the green light, issued us the visas. Um, so that was great. We just wasn't aware that that company had, had changed everything and just they just didn't mention that little point. So when we, and, and as far as the propost was concerned, uh, right down to the last minute, I was like, well, screw it. We haven't got time to piss around here. We just got to go for it. Mm. Actually thinking that we weren't going to make it anyway. So all this was mute, you know, it doesn't really matter. Because, you know, I didn't actually expect to get across the Bering Strait first time. When I stepped onto the Bering Strait, I had two main concerns, and that was A, staying alive, and B, how the hell I was going to afford a second attempt. These were like the biggest concerns. However, we went onto the Bering Strait, Bering Strait, willing to give it our best go. But actually getting to Russia, I have to admit, wasn't foremost on my mind. We had the visas. And as far as the propost goes, I was, as far as I was concerned, if we did make it, then we would just have to come back to Alaska. We wouldn't be able to continue through Alaska to, to Siberia. We'd have to come back and sort out the paperwork. Um, but it was funny, if you watch some of the footage of us crossing the Bering Straits, as we approach the Alaska, the Siberian coastline, there's a, me and Dimitri are joking about how we're going to end up finding ourselves in jail because we realized that, wait a minute, we actually mm. don't have all the paperwork. But uh, to be honest, all that was, was, wasn't particularly foremost in our minds because um, when we realized that we were going to make it, we also realized that we were about to make history, which kind of yeah, supersedes yeah. most, you know, paperwork concerns. So we were like that, ah, you know, really wasn't that interested in the paperwork. So I thought we could, pretty much take care of that at a later date. And, and surely the Russians would understand this. Surely they'd get it. Well, um, they really didn't so. get it. Uh, it. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't amused at all. And it was funny because we arrived on April 1st, but we arrived on April Fool's Day and came in behind yeah, the border yeah, yeah. guards based on Cape Dejna to stop the invasion. Um, and we kind of crept up behind them and said, boo. And they were not amused. Um, so, yeah, we were uh, quickly detained. And they just weren't buying into this whole, no, we just walked across the Bering Straits. They just weren't buying that at all. So, obviously, we'd just been dropped off by a submarine. Uh, and, the, and the more the FSB looked into it, the more suspicious it probably looked to them, especially with my background. Uh, my father, yeah, yeah. special forces, you know, brother in Wong Para. Um, I had a lot of contacts in the U.S., like a, some indirect contact with the U.S. military through like people who make, you know, like these glasses. Uh, ESS was a, a company that makes these ballistic proof glasses. They had deals yep. with the U.S. military army, U.K. army, and, you know, and we 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 touched on this kind of thing while I'm in America, and I remember the. The, um, the the U.S. 
uh, Arctic Warfare Center in uh, Alaska had invited me on camp once to talk to the Arctic Warfare instructors, just to have a conversation about my experiences out in Alaska, having crossed Alaska. Uh, and I had photographs on my laptop from those encounters. Uh, and when the Russians picked up on all this stuff, because they, they take your equipment off of you and they, you know, they go through everything. And then they, they, yeah, they had a real fun time with me. And they pretty much, the local FSB agents who are stuck in the middle, you know, in the, the arse end of nowhere. Uh, for them, this was Christmas and birthday all, get, all run to one. This, this was going to make their career and get them promoted and, and sent to Moscow because they captured these spies. And so they kind of, they just ran with it. Uh, yeah, we yeah. found ourselves uh, in a little bit of a pickle. Um, and then it, eventually that whole situation became very political. The world's press kind of picked up on it and there was a bit of pressure put on that region in Russia. Uh, and the, it turned out that the governor of Chukotka, this part of Russia, was um, one Abramovich, who had a lot of interest in the UK, including the, he was the owner of Chelsea Football Club, etc. Yep, yep. um, at the time. And my local MP at the time was uh, just happened to be deputy prime minister. So our, our stars yeah. kind of aligned. So the politics kind of intervened. Um, and ultimately, we were put on trial um, in a small village in Siberia, which was just a, a shit show. Um, found guilty, but we had the option for a retrial. We took it, and then the retrial happened in it. And Anada, the capital of Chukotka, and by that stage, the landscape had changed, the politics, the press were involved, and um, we were allowed to continue. Uh, but it was a very, very interesting time. And, and the fact that politics got involved was kind of really upset the Russian security apparatus, like the FSB and the border guards, who wanted us to go to jail. Um, they wanted to put us in jail for five years. So um, we got lucky there. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was so a little tense after, at times, but we got we got lucky. Yes. So after after you uh, obviously you, you trial and stuff. When was it that you got? Because you did get. Was it eventually you you ended up with a visa ban? Was it a five year visa ban initially? Well, that come um, that come a few years later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So obviously yeah, so, you carried on your way. Right. Well, it's, this is where this contention with the FSB comes in. So every, well, I was restricted in Russia to three months. Um, you have like a 90-day visa, uh, but you're only allowed to do 90 days out of every 180 days. So you've got okay. to go in for three, you get three months in, then you've got to do three months out. And the problem was is that we're in Siberia, and you can't logistically move, or it's very difficult to move, in the in the summer months it's just waterlogged there's no roads um and every time i go back i have to provide a plan to the russians that they like um okay. and they're very conscious on people getting themselves into trouble because they have to come and rescue you and they don't like doing that it's all very expensive so the agreement was that I would end up doing three months every winter. And this is another reason why this section of the world took so long 
was that I would go in and do three months, have to come out and then go back in next winter and do three months. On top of that, I had the FSB who didn't want me there at all. And they were constantly applying pressure. So I had to deal with them every time I went in. And there was just a lot of tension there between us. It got quite scary at times. And then eventually at one point, it pretty much felt like a bit of an ambush. But part of the route, and I had Russian fixers helping me and they were helping with me with the route and they'd found the route, they'd given the route the green light. They had to clarify and check that route with local government. However, at some point on that route, I had infringed upon, upon a local border zone. There is between the northern coast in about 40 miles is like a security zone where you need special permission to be in this area of special permission. So okay. there's like layers of special permission. And sure enough, apparently I had triggered a response as I we had this route had crossed into um, this border security area. The Russians that were working for us at the time disputed that and said, no, it's bullshit. But anyway, the border guards came out and they took me off the ground um, and we got fined and they were applying even more pressure saying, you know, you've come here, you're breaking the rules again. So there's this constant back and forth. And then I had to leave at the end of three months. And then when we tried to go back, we were denied. And they said, because of our infractions uh, on the rules for a second time. Hmm. So, so yeah, with, with so now that, though, we I'm had not... a five year visa ban. Yeah. So just going back to the, um, obviously you obviously got brought off and got charged and what have you and fined. Obviously, when you did that, did you not tell them that you were obviously following a route that was actually sort of planned by themselves? Like, so obviously, you didn't, in that section, you didn't, right. you weren't following your route. That was their route that they give you. So, was that, was that not something they took in consideration? Well, it wasn't them directly gave me, but the route apparently had right. been cleared. So, okay. none of that matters. I mean, this is why, you know, ultimately to me, it felt like a bit of an ambush. I mean, I know these guys are after me. Um, and I think this was just an opportunity for them to say, okay, now we can get him out. Um, so that, yeah, you know, at that point I'm stuck. Um, the visa ban was, I can't remember when that was now. Um, but before that as well, I think we got we got stuck before that in the visa in the um, financial crisis 2008. Hmm. That cost me like three years yeah. uh, because I couldn't I came I'd come out of Russia at one point uh, a while just before I was due to go back into Russia. The financial crisis hit. I lost my sponsors and we were working a, a sponsorship deal. And all this is happening while I'm in the most expensive part of the journey. Like this, this, the cost of working in that part of the world is just absolutely mind-numbing. Like the amount of money it, it costs to get me and all my equipment in, the logistics of working up there is just crazy because I fly in with pallets of boxes of, of fuel and food and special equipment. And all that has to go into a central hub in Siberia. Um, at one point, we, we had to charter a flight to get from Alaska into Alaska. You know, you're looking at about 10 grand. Um, mm. 
there's, there's thousands of dollars in logistics. You've got to separate all this stuff and it's got to be flown around Siberia to these villages that are going to be waypoints to spread it out amongst all these, these villages that you want to hit along the way. Oh, God. And the Russians don't want to help you do that. And they're out to no. make a killing because you've got money and they'll, they want it. And oh, my God. It's like the most stressful place to work. Um, yeah. Incredibly yeah, yeah. difficult. So when, when the financial crisis hit and I lost my sponsors and I, I lost the deal that we were working on, we'd been working on eight months with what would have been the biggest sponsorship deal at the time, all that disappeared within the click of a finger in August 2008. And I, 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 I at the time, I was running across the border doing a visa dance because I had to leave the US because I had to cycle my visas because, you know, I can't go home. The whole point of this thing is to do it without returning to the UK until I arrive on foot. So yep. when I get stuck, I have to dance around. Um, so I ended up in Mexico with nothing and couldn't get back. And it would be three years after that before eventually the guys who were sponsoring me now found me, uh, brought me back into the game plan, put me back in Siberia, and then... A year or two later, we get this visa ban. So that's another right. probably two, almost three years. Um, you know, the first year we spend fighting this thing, but realize that isn't going to work because we, we think we, we learned that this, this ban comes directly from the FSB. And so then we end up coming up with this walk across America. Yeah, kind yeah. of while we make, put together this campaign to try and, and convince someone to let us back in. I thought it was folly. I didn't think that was going to work at all. Um, yeah. But it worked. It did. It worked. You know, right before I arrived in Washington, D.C., because we, we walked from where my sponsors are based in, in Los Angeles, right across America. And the idea was to take yeah. this thing all the way to the doorstep of the Russian embassy in D.C., uh, hmm. And right before I, I reached D.C., a major uh, publication in the East Coast, Washington Post, I think, they picked the story up and ran with it. And yep, someone yep. in the Russian embassy, a decision maker, had read that. He thought, sounds great. You know what? I'm willing to help the guy out. So just before I got there, we got uh, an email from the Russian embassy and they said, ah, come, come down. We'll talk. Freaking amazing. Couldn't yeah. believe it myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I, I rock I up, say, sure enough, they gave us a reason. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to say, because if people haven't watched it, it's obviously that part of your journey is, is obviously part of a National Geographic uh, documentary, uh, which yeah. I actually, I re-watched it this morning, because uh, obviously I, yeah. I you know, wanted to, it's, it's a great documentary. Um, now, well, just, just with that section of the journey in America, the walking across America, Obviously, it took you over was it over a year, but three hundred and seventy something days. Um, now, with with I think was it ten days of that you spent with your son. Um, with with that in mind, I, obviously, he's now I think he's only he's only a couple of years younger than myself. I think he's is he in his late twenties, early thirties now? I believe. Early thirties. Yeah. So, and um, I. I've, I've thought to myself, like, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, is obviously you've been doing this for pretty much three quarters of his life, pretty much. Like, how do, how would, how does people like sort of look at you in that kind of context, like looking at you as in, 
obviously having a family and well, you know having your son and stuff like that around. Uh, does does it, does that ever come into your mind a bit? Oh, all the time. Yeah, you mean yeah. you mean looking yeah. at me as the worst worst father in the world? Yeah. Pretty yeah, much. well, like I'll see. Uh, yeah, hey, I, I, that's, I'm that's sure. That's something I have to deal with. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and I can imagine a, that, that a, must be difficult. That's a heavy. That's a heavy weight, and it doesn't get any lighter. Mm. You know, yeah. uh, that time with Adam in the U.S. was long time coming and i had always hoped that it would happen before that but uh, in my own mind when we started this thing i always imagined that, that that me doing this would probably be of more benefit to my son than me working in a gas station somewhere or a supermarket um, yeah, yeah. there was there was a lot before i began the expedition there was there was distance between us because the ex had taken Adam back to Northern Ireland where I couldn't go as a soldier, mm. duty. Um, yeah. So there's already that gap developing there. Um, but uh, no, it's been a tricky one. Uh, I'd hoped yeah. that would have been, there would have been more interaction than there has, but uh, reality was different. Mm. And I think that's still, still something that we're going to be working on for a long time to come, I think, me and Adam. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure that will you know that will sort you know hopefully sort of sort itself out. Now, you know, like you set upon doing this uh, this expedition, you know, a long, long time ago, and I'm sure when you eventually do come to complete it, which I hope will be not in the too distant future, um, you know, COVID permitting and stuff like that. Um, and, and I'm sure he'll be very proud of what you're doing, like because obviously, like if you, if you know, if I was in his shoes, I'd definitely be like proud. It's it's it's, a, it's like it's something that has you know like never been done before, and it's something that I'm sure like no one will ever do after you. I'm sure, like I'm sure no one will, because obviously with technology and stuff like that, I don't feel people will need to do what you've done, but you, obviously you are. Um, now. Obviously, between that time and say of the documentary, was that was that two thousand? I think it was two thousand and fourteen. Um, up until from yeah. then until 2000. now, what? Yeah. So, what is it you've been doing from then until now? So two thousand fourteen. So we go back into Russia. Um, after mm. that, um, eventually we, we get off the tundra, which was a big day. Once we get off the tundra and we get to that first road network in Siberia, then we're pretty much moving full time again. Other than having to come out for three months, but then we can go back in straight afterwards uh, and continue. Yeah. Um, and then so I, I keep going all the way down to the border with Mongolia. And then into Mongolia, I get halfway through Mongolia to Ulaanbaatar. Um, meet a whole bunch of crazy people. We start talking about camels. Um, and then I get this. There was a conversation one night over a couple of bottles of wine with some locals and another Brit about long distance camel caravans. Uh, yeah. Uh, so and we kind of ran with that story and decided we would have a go at running camel, a camel caravan, the longest camel caravan in history across okay. the Silk Road back to Europe. Um, 
sounded great at the time. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Well, just, just, just sorry, so quickly with that. Um, with um, you said you obviously was with another Brit. Was that was that J Jamie? No, so no. You were with? At the time, it was a guy called. Um, um, oh God, his name's escaping me now. Uh, Lloyd, um, Andrew Lloyd. He he was okay. he was walking down through from Russia through Mongolia to um, to um, the Himalayas, uh, okay. and I met. I we intersected in Ulaanbaatar. Um, Jamie got on board a bit later. Okay. So, and that was during the process of one of the ideas was to put together an international team with this camel caravan. Um, so I started reaching out to people who might want to play ball. Um, so a couple of long distance walkers came in. Eventually, we hooked up with Jamie. Jamie came down for a while. Um, yeah, because with Jamie, I didn't, I didn't actually know realized until earlier today actually that um you you joined joined you in that section there because i i had jamie on the podcast last week um i could have asked right. him i didn't realize so yeah i'm actually so yeah i was actually surprised about that because i know he did go through that section but um yeah no, so so what, what when you met jamie what happened from, from then on well we hooked up we had a team we spent you know i had a couple of months my, my sponsors were willing to throw some money in there so we could buy the camels. I ended up, I ended up owning 10 camels at one point. Um, and we had to train these camels and train ourselves. So we had a very interesting, I don't know, six months just outside of Ulaanbaatar. Um, but throughout this entire process, we were having a bit of a contentious time with the Mongolian element of the team. Uh, and eventually that became just too much to deal with. Uh, the cross Mongolia, so the rest, the rest, the, the next half of Mongolia was going to be with the, with the camel journey during the winter months, uh, and that was going to be, the, you know, that was going to be the make or break. If that worked, then there's a good chance maybe we could have taken this thing onto onto the world stage. But as as it happened, I just I just could not work with the Mongolian element, um, okay. and eventually it all kind of broke down. And I, I bailed. I had to sell the camels and bail, which was a huge defeat. One of the biggest defeats on this entire thing, because I'd really bought into the whole, uh, that part of the journey. It was just would have been an amazing achievement to have done that. It would have been an amazing story. But um, unfortunately, I had to let that go. Hmm. That bothered me for quite okay. a while. So I ended up back on the road by myself. Okay, and so what? Once you, uh, so what brought you to? Because I know obviously now you're in Mexico. So what brought you going from Mongolia back to to where you are now? So like, Mongolia, yeah. So Mongolia would take me into northern China, the Xixing province, which is a really interesting place. That's that part of China where they have these you know controversial concentration camps, and the oppression mm. of the Uyghurs and all that kind of thing. So it's it's a it's a real police state. You hear a lot of people talking about police states. You haven't seen mm. a police state until you've been there. It's, it's yeah. so Orwellian. It's unbelievable. Um, so that's a really interesting time. And then into Kazakhstan. And then down through Kazakhstan to Uzbekistan. And then out of Uzbekistan into Turkmenistan. And Turkmenistan is a really interesting place as well because it's, 
it's a really closed society. Not many people really understand much about Turkmenistan. I don't even know anything about it. It's kind of like North Korea trying to get a visa into, well, it's probably easier to get a, a visa into North Korea than it is Turkmenistan. Uh, we got okay. lucky again. Uh, we got a 30-day visa. So with me and an escort, I was allowed to walk through Turkmenistan. That gets me just in time for the end of that visa on the border with Iran. Okay. And this was uh, late um, um, 2019. Okay. Uh, and things were not good between Iran, the states, just for everyone else at that mm. time. The, um, I think the, not long before I arrived on that border, the Iranians had um, hit those Saudi oil refineries. If you okay. remember that. And there was, yeah, yeah. you know, the Brits were, 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 you know, stopping Iranian tankers in the Gibraltar Straits and the Iranians were pushing back on Marines in the Gulf and everything was getting really tense. There was a talk of war and I arrive on the border and I have a British passport, which is not good. Um, no. There are three passports you don't want or you're not, not allowed to enter freely into Iran and that's a US passport a Canadian passport and a British passport. Okay. If I'd been French, if I'd been Swedish, if I'd been Australian, life would have been a thousand times simpler, but uh, unfortunately not. So I, again, what we are, I have to leave uh, Turkmenistan. So we realize that this is going to be a bit of an endeavor. My sponsors bring me back to Los Angeles where we have to sit down and put together a war room and figure out how we're going to solve the problem with Iran. We really want to do Iran. Um, I personally really want to do Iran. I think it would be an amazing experience from everyone I have ever met who has ever been there. It has been one of the best places they have ever been. That's Brits, okay. Americans alike. One of the friendliest countries you'll, you'll go to. Um, a beautiful part of the world, hell of history. So I want to, I want to, I really want to do Iran. I've, I've wanted to do Iran for a long time. So I'm, I'm yeah. pretty determined that we should knuckle down and do this uh, so we decide to, to put a lot of effort in and we first of all have to find contacts within Iran who are actually willing to talk to us a lot of people were not a lot of travel agencies were not willing to, to work with us at all now my sponsors are American they cannot do anything because of the sanctions yep. so they cannot in any way be involved so I am now completely on my own so I have to find okay. myself a network to financially support this section of the journey outside of my sponsors. My sponsors, you know, if, if, if I have to, if I want to do this, I got to do this on my own. That ultimately is the feedback from the lawyers. They cannot be involved yeah. at all. So it, it, it's a lot of hard work to try and make that work. And ultimately I ended up finding uh, a guy who can get us the visas. And as, as, we do, as this is all working, things between the US and Iran go downhill. You know, we end up taking out Soleimani with a hellfire or something. And next thing you know, you've got rockets flying across the border into Iraq and US air bases and things just go downhill quick time. And this is to Christmas and beyond. Um, the contact that we'd been working with said, look, I'm out. I can't talk to you. Goodbye. He disappeared. Yeah. yeah. So come 2020, Things weren't looking great at all. Uh, so we're having to seriously reconsider. But I, I remember one drunk night 
sending a yelling text at the Iranian screaming, come on, what are we doing? We're better than this. Let's get our shit together, yada, yada, yada. And it worked. And he just reappeared and said, okay, I'm with you. Let's try. So we started working <laughs> okay. on it. Um, again, wine. Wine answers to all our problems, apparently. Yeah. yeah. And so we start, we actually start communicating and we start working. And I'm like, guys, we're back. Let's do this. And that takes us into March uh, 2020. And by that stage, the world is just imploding. And one of the first countries to get hit outside of China by the coronavirus is Iran. So almost immediately, right. um, you know, one step forward, two steps back, and then it all just disappears. Um, yeah, yeah. And that was it. You know, we spend the rest of 2020 just looking at each other dumbfounded and saying, well, what do we do now? And my sponsors just, everyone just hunkered down. And that was pretty much the case right up until you know Christmas this year. I had a conversation yeah. with my sponsors just after New Year, and they were like, "No, we we don't want, but we can't do anything. We as a business, we can't. My sponsors can't do anything. Funding wise, we can't do anything. Everything's on hold. Everything's uncertain. We don't want you moving. I can't go back into Turkmenistan. So all my equipment is in Turkmenistan." Turkmenistan okay. has closed okay. its borders uh, and hasn't opened them since. So okay. the whole Iran-Turkmenistan route is, despite our best efforts, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do that. Um, so okay. plan B is to backtrack to Uzbekistan, pick it up from Bukhara in Uzbekistan and head north uh, up through the desert, aerial sea, back into Russia. Now, okay. we don't even know if Russia will let me back in. Because I think they were pretty okay. happy to see me go. Hmm. Um, so, so we don't even know if that, that's an option, but that's something we might have to start investigating. Yeah. Do I even so want to go back to Russia? Not really. Yeah. No, no I can imagine not. Um, so... At the moment, obviously, as I say, you kind of because of COVID, is you just stuck in Mexico for the time being? Well, we're stuck. Um, it's what do we do first? So I think, I mean, me and my sponsors said, look, there's a lot of things happening. The vaccines was you know starting to to be put into effect. So we were like, okay, let's see if this changes the equation. Let's see if people the rules change. Let's see if people are start, willing to start up in their borders. Maybe we can have a conversations with the tech, with the tech ministan and say, look, if I get a vaccine, can we have a permission to come back? If we can, you know, if you tell us what you want, uh, if we can uh, meet those objectives, maybe we can work on a deal there. Because I just need to get back in to be able to just cross the border to continue yeah, yeah. that journey. Uh, into, so I, don't, I need a five-day visa, which is what they would normally give you in tech ministan like a okay. transit visa in and out that would yeah, work yeah. you know so if i could do that great down and if i and i still i'm still talking to this guy in iran you know we have a new administration in the us maybe things will calm down maybe they'll start moving in a different direction maybe that landscape will change who knows so within a couple of months a lot can happen yeah hopefully, so hopefully the question so. for us is being yeah so i mean 
when you sit back and you look at this thing from the 40,000 foot view, you know, and how long I've been on the ground already, what's a couple of months here or there? Well, a couple of months has become a year to a year and a half. It sucks, but if it works and, and we can, you know, if we can do it Iran into Turkey, that would be awesome. Mm. Um, yeah, of yeah. course, my sponsors, who are a production company from Los Angeles, and have put a lot of money into this now, keeping me alive and moving forward, they need to make money on the other back end of this. And so whatever we can produce in the forms of a documentary, film, etc., after this fact, we'll actually pay for it. So, yeah, yeah. you know, the route where we go and the cultures that I find myself in will play into that. They play into the equation there as well. Um, yeah. So there's a so, lot of things, a lot of moving pieces that we have to work with to make everybody happy. Yeah. And, you know, dealing with the legalities and the borders and visas and everything right now as well. It's just it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, obviously it doesn't help, but, you know, obviously, like I say, the situation we're in at the moment. But as you say, um, what's what's a matter of, you know, months or, you know, if you know 18 months or whatever, in in the in the grand scheme of what you've already done, then it's worth the yeah. worth the wait. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. yeah and, so and the thing the thing so, about this expedition and others that people tend not to think about, because they're like, well, other people are still out there doing stuff. Other people did it a lot quicker. And yes, because mm. you're willing to, if you can compromise on the route, if if the route, if the if the if the minutia of detail on this route, for me is the most important thing, right? Like I can't break that chain of activity. So I have to walk, if I stop somewhere, I have to start there again. Um, so, and other people don't have that problem. Um, you know, you can fly across an ocean, you can go from one place to another and walk across this part of the world and go back and do a part, that other part later. But we decided that we can't do that. So I can't compromise to that extent on the route. And that is why yeah. something like this takes as long as it does because you have to fight um, for every step that you take and it's these long drawn out issues with the finances visas and visa bans and all the geopolitics and the world pandemic all that and you can't compromise on the route things get really complicated and this is why it takes so yeah. long yeah yeah so obviously you know all, all well and good hopefully you'll move on you know hopefully at some point this year i'd, I'd like to hope What's your sort of future plans going up till, you know, when it, whenever you plan on finishing? Like, do you have a, a time scale in your head of when you'd like to finish from now on? If we get back on the ground and we get moving, then, you know, the, the Iran-Turkey route is more direct. So you're looking at about two years. If I'm forced okay. to do plan B, that adds a lot of distance, uh, like 2,000 mm. odd kilometer, miles, not kilometers or miles, I can't remember one of those two. Because um, mm. what we're looking at doing, if the Russians let me back in, is to go up into Russia. So you're going north of the Caspian Sea rather than across the bottom. Yeah. So I have to go back up over the yeah, back. Yeah. And then the idea would be to come down back into Turkey. So that's like down through the okay. Caucasus, through Georgia, back into Turkey. Um, I mean, the option could be to go direct through East Russia into, um, into the Ukraine, which is a whole new kind of worms right there on the, yeah, you know, yeah. Russian Ukraine border area. And then above that is Belarus. Uh, none of us particularly want to go that route. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so that, you still there? 
No, I'm still here. I'm still here. So still ideally, there. we want to go back south. So that would probably add another year at least, if not a year and a half, onto the journey. So three. So you know, best case two years, worst case three and a half. Say. Okay. Okay. So that's yeah. So that, you know, something to look forward to, and hopefully, like I said, by the end of this year, you'll at least be able to do something. Um, now, the one thing I want to talk about is it's sort sort of aside from the actual expedition itself. Now, just going back slightly to as what I mentioned earlier about watching, I, I rewatched your documentary earlier today. Something I like to talk about a little bit uh, is I talk, obviously being ex-military yourself, you'll understand about the you know how men, you know mental health and stuff, how important it is, obviously in in especially in the military background. Um, now. One particular part that I noticed, you know, when you were in America and there was, a, I can't remember which part it was particularly, but you had like, to me, obviously you had a bit of a breakdown, like to me. And I don't know if that was from joy, in joy, uh, tears of joy or sadness. Now, obviously being away for as long as you have, there must've been times where you've been, you know, quite down, I would say, um, you know, you know, missing birthdays and stuff like that. Um, and I know, like, as, as people who will, will watch the, the documentary, obviously people will see that, you know, you're now a grand, granddad, a grandfather. Um, so there must be a lot of things you miss from that. Um, now, how how would you cope with being by yourself for probably a majority of the time? Like, is there anything you do to keep yourself busy, occupied, or do you speak to people? What is it that you try and do to keep yourself happy, or you know, to keep yourself in a good good mood? I mean, that's no small question. It's a it's a hmm. it's a, an interesting part of this thing, um, and yeah. it's been interesting to to watch the development there within myself. Hmm. So yeah. there have been what I would say are five five incidents, I'll call them, where yeah. I have been pushed over the edge a little bit and things kind of mm. unraveled um like i hadn't known depression which is a serious okay. thing well, until is, you know yeah. the latter years last couple of years maybe well you know last 20 years maybe um induced by time and stress i don't know maybe it's very difficult to say but yeah the isolation thing kind of plays it does play a big part in ways you're not really aware of because ultimately I think human beings are not designed to live this way. Mm. So, you know, people talk about, oh, but we used to be nomads, etc. But well, yeah, we did, but the, the, your entire town and family came with you. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, you were never, you were never on your own ever. Um, you were, you'd never be able to survive. You're, it was always a team effort. There's always the family and there's always the clan, the tribe, um, and I think isolating yourself and not having any close relationships, you know, just acquaintances mm. on and off, it get, it, it actually works on you. Uh, you know, it kind of creeps up on you, I think. Um, and I think I felt some issues, most of the issues I've had have, have stemmed from rela failed relationships. There was one incident in, in Chile, the first time I ever had a kind of weird incident where I think I was overwhelmed because I, I, I'd gotten 
out above Santiago, Chile. Probably been on the road almost a year. Uh, and it felt like a lifetime. And I think just the enormity of everything in front of me at that point overwhelmed me. And I had this weird incident where it just, I don't know what happened mentally, but it was like going into shock. Mm. Kind of like depression, but it wasn't. It was kind of weird. And that kind of scared me a little bit. And uh, it, it left me just sitting stunned for a while. Mm. And after that, I always approach life a little differently, whereby rather than focus on the journey as a whole, I would really restrict myself to focusing on the next waypoint, very yeah. short term. Because the longer term was just too much to deal with. You know, it took so much effort just to get from one place to the next that thinking about doing that for the next 12, 20 years was just crippling. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, I think I had a seven-year relationship at some point with a girl from Colombia who I had assumed was going to become my wife at one point. And then mm -hmm. when all that fell apart, because of the expedition, that was a, I think that's when I really had depression for the first time. And that was right up while I was in Alaska as well. It kind of kept kicking in just the worst times. Yeah. So I really struggled with that. And then after that, there were a couple of more incidents that, uh, yeah, I'd never, I, you know, I, I've never, I'd never been to places so dark before. Well, it's, it, it, you know, really interesting how it physically affects you. Um, yeah. It's a whole new kind of pain. That's very, very difficult to deal with. So, I mean, up until that point, yeah, I never really paid attention to, to, to how debilitating these things can be. Yeah, depression yeah. and stuff like that. You know, I guess it happens to most people. Yeah, you know, yeah. Anyone who's, who's under pressure, one or another, it's going to happen. So, I got to the age and got to the point in life where it was my turn. Uh, didn't enjoy it at all. I mean, it's happened a few times. Um, Recently, I've, I, you know, I've lost a very important relationship again because of this expedition hmm. that happened in 2020. Yeah. Because 2020 just sucked hmm. beyond all yeah. belief, hmm. uh, and I lost a, a, a really important relationship. And uh, you know, so the latter half of 2020 was just a ball kicker of a, a couple of months, yeah. and I struggled with how like how with that one, but I didn't. I didn't go down to the kind of depths I had before, I don't think. Um, yeah, it's, it's obviously yeah, this right. thing is taking, yeah, it takes chunks is, out of you, that's for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, obviously, like you said, like people do expeditions, but there's expeditions and then there's expeditions. There's, there's what you do. Now, this is different. Yeah, this is it different. Is. It is different. It is. The time thing is, 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 it's starting to really wear on me. And I remember, like, there was a, a this is, with well, a camel journey, what really appealed to me is at one point when I, when I found myself in Ulaanbaatar, I'd just mm. crossed half of Mongolia and I sat down in Ulaanbaatar and I had this real weird fear and uncomfortable existence with the thought of having to leave Ulaanbaatar on my own again. This is before I met the guys and started talking about the camel journey. So one of the massive appeals of the camel journey was, was the team element. Yeah. Um, yeah. This to me was, was a vaccination against something that I was already starting to struggle with. 
which was the being alone. It was just the time alone on the ground. Um, because Mongolia is just a desolate, open place. Without living with yourself and struggling with yourself day in, day out, for what feels like eternity sometimes, was, was really kicking. Mm. And, uh, and, it, and this, this realization that I could work with a team was almost like a shot of morphine. Like, it felt so good. Mm. And oddly so. And that's where I really, really gravitated to it and wanted that to happen. Yeah. And I kind of felt that again recently with the whole having to go back. Once I'd lost this last relationship that I had, suddenly found myself alone. Because I'd spent a lot of time on the ground with, with this woman that I've been in this relationship with more than I ever had with anybody else. So during the time through Central Asia, um, into out of Mongolia, into, into China, Turkmenistan, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, I'd spent a lot of time on the ground with this girl. Some of the best times I'd ever had. And mm -hmm. suddenly, having lost all of that, and the thought of going back into Uzbekistan and going back into the north, into those deserts, Plan B, alone, just a gut punch. And it was yeah. just an awful, awful feeling. And I, I really don't want to, and I'm struggling with it. And it's kind of like, it's odd, it's weird. I don't know why that's a problem. You know, I've spent so much time on my own. Um, at any given point in the Americas, I never would have had that issue. But it's, it's, it's a real thing. And it's something I, I've never, I'm just kind of like, you know, having to deal with, and I, I don't really know what that is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of them, I think. Feeling. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like it's almost like a fear of going back yeah. on the road alone, which is mm. kind of weird. I think uh, the way we are, like obviously, when I say we, I mean people like my, me, yourself and I, like obviously ex, being ex-military, we always we're always surrounded by people. We're always relying on the man or woman on your left or right, you know. And I think that's something that was drilled into us from you know from basic training. You always look after each other, and that's it. So I feel like when you do, like for me personally, I. I love being in a team. I love working with other people, but the skills that they give us, uh, being in the military is to be able to work by yourself at any given time. But I think subconsciously being in a team is how most people get their satisfaction. I think, and, and I might just be talking from my, my point of view, but yeah. you know, that's, that's the way I look at it. And I think for instance, I've done things in the past, obviously nothing to the scale of what you've done. But I've done small expeditions around around you know, some places in the world, um, and just having that some someone there to talk to, and to help you with something that if you might be struggling with something, or if you're feeling a bit negative and down, just to perk you up a little bit. I feel like that's the biggest help you can have. So I feel like that could be something that maybe going going again about the being ex-military. I think that's something that possibly might be why the way you are if that makes sense i don't know if that's something you can kind of relate to i mean that that you know probably plays a part of it for sure mm. but even even the the context that you're talking about comes down to more fundamental human behaviors we're yeah. just social animals you know we, mm. we live in families and groups and teams or tribe for a reason it's just who we are it's how we operate and how we work best yeah uh, so when when you don't have those close connections to anybody yeah, that, it's a problem. It's and it, saying that even even um, when we do work with people, it can be serious problems, <laughs> um, especially under stressful conditions. Like expeditions are notorious for the, the fights that they have 
you know, the in-team fighting. Um, you know, I, when I think about um, Randall Fiennes and Mike Shroud, mm. um, uh, other examples, uh, and me myself, like me and Dimitri Kito, who did the Baron Strait, we did a bit of Siberia together. It's hard. Like, mm. you've got to really know your buddy um, mm. to be able to get along, especially if you're two strong-headed individuals who are probably used to working alone. Uh, and and the the team in that I put to, that we put together in in uh, Mongolia, I found it really hard to work with the team. Once we started moving, it was terrible <laughs> because yeah, yeah. I'm so set in my ways individually, um, with the way I operate and function. Like to suddenly start working with a much bigger team was was, was hellish. But that's yeah. something that I always imagined that we, you know, would work into. But mm. step back from the deep, from those details. The bigger picture, of course, is the fact that that need to have people around us, that need to have those relationships, and that need to be able to have that connection with people is important. And when you don't have it, it starts to interfere with you in, in some unusual and weird ways. So hard to mm. understand. Yeah. Hard to pin pin down. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. I get that. Um, it's, uh, as I say, I think it's, like you say, it is a natural sort of human trait that we have. Obviously, you know, millions of years ago, we, we were all, you know, like you say, we are not being nomadic and stuff. We obviously travelled together in families and groups. So it's it's kind of natural for us to be with other people and communicating with other people. So yeah. I feel like I feel like being by yourself for such a, you know, a long time can obviously have some negative effects no matter what you know um but that's that's something i'm sure you know it's, you've grown to learn it's not obviously like i said the stuff you're doing you've not done a you know month two month three month you know even a six month expedition you know you've been doing this for over 22 years so it's something i'm sure you've grown into it's more of a it seems like it's more of a lifestyle than it is anything else even though it is an expedition it, it seems is. to be more of a, yeah so it seems it to be is, more of yeah. a lifestyle yeah, it's a very different thing. So everything you're hearing is coming from my context, from my version of life and how I've got it. So it's, it's, it's a different case from many others. Uh, it works very differently for other people. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially yeah, from the, the army side of things. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, literally, like you're saying about, you know, tribes and how we used to live together in groups. I mean, literally, the, you know, we work with the Dunbar number, um, you know, yeah. a company a military company, the size of a military company of 130 odd guys is, is what we refer to, you know, they use this Dunbar number where, which used to be the relative size of what tribes and groups and families, that family size used to be. It's like the maximum mm. number whereby you have those personal intimate relationships with everyone around you. So in groups mm. of about 130 would be an optimum number, for example. And that's yeah. where a company comes from, you know, because if you think back to the, to the military days, you know the guys in your company a lot better than you know the rest of the guys in the battalion. That company yeah. has a lot of, you have a lot of loyalty to those, that company group um, because it becomes more of a family to you. Um, and yeah, exactly. that's very much part of that that dynamic, yeah. Yeah, um, obviously, I, I don't want to, you know, I know you, you've got things to, you know, you want to uh, get on with your day and whatever, so I don't want to keep you too long, mate. Um, there's just a couple of things I want to talk to you about. Um, so if you could give yourself advice going back to when you first started, is there anything you would have changed 
uh, when you started than what you did, or or would you keep it the same? I don't know if I, it's a difficult question. Um, or for I instance, don't think is, so. uh, is, is, I don't is, think is, you can get. So, I don't is think there I something can get to where I am today? Yeah, yeah. Go on. Sorry. If I don't, I, I, I don't think I could have changed. I can't see where I would have changed anything that would have made it any easier, hmm. other than just being more capable and smarter overall yeah. in general. <laughs> hmm. um, other than that, no. You know, everything I've done so far has worked to get me where I am you know, with the help of others. Yeah. Um, you have to also realize that you know, no man's an island. Again, you know, despite I'm on the ground a lot of the time alone, it is other people that have helped me do this. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, it's been right from family helping me get through South America and finding me some money and keep me up, upright and moving forward to yeah. the people on the ground who have fed me and nursed me back to health when I'm sick. Uh, people who mm. don't have a lot themselves yeah, to yeah. sponsors who, you know, make things happen. Like right now, the guys, you know, they make, they, they, they do, they're dealing with the visas. They've got me back into Russia. Um, yeah. UK politicians helped me get back into Russia. The press helped me get back into Russia. It's mm. the support from a lot of people in the UK that pushed the press to get involved, that made things happen. You know, there's a long chain of other people involved you're never just doing this by yourself it's never just a me thing which is why i always refer to it as a we and you know people sometimes question why i'm saying we all the time because it, it is a we thing it's not me mm. although i spend a lot of time on my own on the ground and I, I deal with that in my own way but the bigger picture again is how i've got to where i am today it's been a, it's been a collective mm. yeah, exactly. um, you can't lose sight of that yeah, um yeah. And to the question of whether what I would have changed, I wouldn't change a thing because it might break it. <laughs> everything yeah, has yeah. worked. Yeah. Even but, even the things that looked like everything was going to rat shit and looked crazy and bizarre, it all played. It was all played its part and got me this far. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't think it would have no. changed anything. That's 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 like you say. Well, the old saying goes, isn't it? You, you don't don't change it unless it's broken. Um, and obviously. You, like you say, you got to where you are now, so and obviously it's worked. So why change so far, it? So good. Yeah, exactly. So um, now, last thing I want to say, or not, or say, or ask, is when you hopefully when you eventually get home, what is the first thing you're going to do when you get home? Dude, I have no idea. Nah, I nah, mean, I really don't. I, um, uh, you know, I don't know what getting home looks like. I don't know what that'll be. It'll be its thing. It'll be, I'm sure it'll be some fanfare and the, my sponsors will organize something. And mm. I, you know, I'm assuming that'll be me, you know, ultimately the aim is to walk out of the channel tunnel. Yeah. Uh, back onto, back into Blighty. Um, and then, you know, I, I'll take this thing all the way back up to Hull. Because you know, even before this thing started, I, I left my mother's house and yeah. walked off down the street and then walked south to Kent. Mm. Now, not many people are aware of that. So I walked from Yorkshire down to Kent to test the trolley that I'd made. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
so and I'll I'll rest, you know I'll 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 take that route back up north and walk back down that street to my yeah. mother's house where it all began. I think that will be the last steps on this thing. Yeah. For um, me, it kind of none of that really matters that much. For me, it's it's getting to the coast of France. Okay. That's the big day. It's because I've always had this thing where because. Back in Three Power, um, my last years in Three Power, we were based in Connaught Barracks in Dover. Um, and you're literally based right behind the, the castle on the cliffs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would spend a lot of time on those cliffs. Uh, and I spent a lot of time looking across the channel at the coast of France. And on a good day, you can see the coast of France. You can just make it out. And I spent God knows how many days and hours what, staring at that coast and imagining myself arriving on the other side hmm. after how many years of the unimaginable and couldn't imagine who I would be on the other side. Um, and that became one of the biggest motivating factors amongst all of us was, was trying to figure out who the guy was on the other side of that channel, looking back at that naive young paratrooper. Hmm. Uh, so this is this, this time loop thing where me and this yeah, image yeah. are looking at each other and that's, you know, and it's all been about who is that guy? What did he have to do to get there? What, who is he now? So I think arriving on those cliffs in France, looking back at the white cliffs, uh, hopefully it'll be a clear day. Hopefully. It'll be quite hopefully. a moment for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if it ended there, if it end, for me, if it ended there, it doesn't matter, job done, um, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. The returning to England and everything else and all the rest of it, the details, great, got to be done, I guess. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, well, like I said, mate, I, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's like I say, what I, I've always kept an eye on what you're doing, and it's, it's amazing. Like, there's literally no one who, who, as I said earlier, who will never probably ever do what you're doing again, and there is never no one who is doing what you're doing. Uh, I don't say you know? never. Come on. Well, it might get well, easier because we might we might end up building a tunnel or a bridge over the Bering Strait and then linking all the highways. So I mean, hey, yeah. But at least could, you could can say it could be a family thing in the future. It could, it could be, it could be. But at least you can say we were the first person to go, you know, across it on foot. You know, so it's it's something that I wouldn't put oh, down. No, like. no, no, no. Uh, uh, Is it no, second? Se sorry, second. Yeah, was it? No, was it? Was it first? I thought it was first going east to west. First from America. First from first from America. First to walk, walk from America into Russia. Yeah. That's that's yeah. you know what we. Have. If you yeah. want to play that game, that's where that is. Yeah, um, but by far no means the the first humans to walk across that land bridge apparently anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in recent but, times, that that honor belongs to the Russians. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we, we you don't want to talk too much about them. Well, not at the moment. They've caused you so many problems over the years. Um, but just. Um, just like I said, as for, lastly, I just want to say thanks, mate. Like, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Like I said, it's 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 nice. It, it's been great. Like I said, it's something that I feel is going to be when eventually you do come to to complete what you're doing. It's going to be like amazing, extraordinary. Like obviously, you know, wherever it may be, I could, I, I personally will say now I'll, I'll be there to support you the last. You know, when you come into the UK or wherever. You, I definitely will be, um, and like I said, because I've been following it for such a long time, um, and 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 you might not feel it. I'm not, you you probably might feel a bit 
because I know what us, us as ex-squadies are like. We're quite, you know, we're quite stubborn and stuff like that. But I, I, I don't know if you believe like how much you believe this, but trust me, you you are quite an inspiration to a lot of people, a lot of people out there. So I just want to say that, uh, Carl. It, it's well, it's it, been an honour. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Like I, I, like I said, like I hope, hopefully, you, you know, I know because as I say, as as squaddies, we, you know, we're, you know, what we're like, we just kind of do things, and it's like, you know, whatever. Um, but trust me, there'll be a lot of people who will be there cheering you on. Uh, hopefully, in you know, two, three years when you get to come back, um, and why? But like I said, I'll be one of them. Um, the last thing is, where like obviously. Where can people sort of keep an eye on what you're doing? Uh, what's the best place, like on on social media, for instance? Like, what's the best way to get in touch, or or just to keep in touch? I mean, I don't, you know, I'm terrible at the social media thing. I'm almost of the yeah. older generation, uh, and I keep promising people I'll get on it. Yeah, uh, I suspect, you know, as we approach the UK, once we're moving again, things will change, and we'll be more involved. Mm. The guys are going to want to do that anyway. It's, it's the run up. Yeah the last days and we'll start the whole machinery of media will kick in and mm. but right now you know i every now and then i i, I try and update facebook i try i, yeah. I, I almost make more of an effort yeah. you, you can google me it's everything you need to know about me is online there's so many yeah interviews and things and there's some stuff on youtube yeah um yeah. you know once we start moving again maybe we'll, we'll do a better job of keeping things up to date yeah, yeah. Well, as I say, thank you very much. It's been an I absolute promise. pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, mate. I'm sure. I'll, I'll, whatever I can find anyway, anything, you know, information about yourself, I'll put it in the description. Um, I'll make sure that's in there so they can keep an eye um, what you're doing. Obviously, that'd be, that'd be great. Um, again, for yourself, people, you know, keep an eye on what I'm doing, the podcast and stuff like that. I've got a few things coming up in the future that I'll talk about, uh, as I say, in due course. Um, so, for people that want to keep in touch, as I say, YouTube, Facebook, all that sort of business, I'm on there. Uh, links will be in the description. Uh, please like the video. Please subscribe to the channel. And if I don't see you soon, I'll catch you on the flip side.